At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. Overmere Anjum. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Overmere is Imam Kitab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies at the University of Toledo, Toledo in the United States. He obtained his PhD in Islamic history. Now, he's the author of this book, which obviously have Politics, Law, and Community in Islamic Thought, The Tamian Moment. And I haven't actually read this yet, I must confess, but the book clearly focuses on the thought of Ibn Taymiyyah, one of the most brilliant theologians of his day. And this book looks really interesting. But today, um, Overmere will uh, be kindly discussing the Islamic understanding of the caliphate and its importance for today. He has written a fascinating article called Who Wants the Caliphate? Now, this is I've just printed it off here. It's a, I actually genuinely found it to be a riveting discussion of the theory and historical experience of Islamic governance. And I'll link to it in the description below. I do recommend it. Um, now, I would like to read the opening paragraph of Overmere's article, which gives us a flavor of his approach. So here we go. Who wants the caliphate? A word loaded like no other caliphate sums up deep memories and desires for some and ominous fears for others. For some 14 centuries, notwithstanding some discontinuities, the Muslim world has been synonymous with the caliphate. The loss of the Ottoman Caliphate after the First World War sent convulsive waves of shock and lament throughout the lands of Islam. The idea of its return inspiring numerous movements and intellectual projects. Its lure, however, receded in the short-lived excitement of post-colonial state building in the shadow of the Cold War. Today, as the failure of this state building becomes ever more spectacular, neoliberal economics and the global environmental collapse claim more victims and the world system inches towards deglobalization and nativism, the idea of the caliphate as the only civilizational alternative that can safeguard the interests of the most vulnerable becomes stronger among Muslims globally. Although it is only beginning to attract scholarly attention, with every suppressed uprising in the Muslim world, every new cycle of terrorism and punitive war, every new Muslim population violated with impunity, and every new wall erected in Euro-America, the idea of a pan-Islamic union wins more converts. Now, that's very rhetorically powerful and quite a condensely packed opening paragraph uh, and uh, it continues uh, in, in this fascinating vein all the way through and as i say i do um, recommend uh, this highly so would you like to introduce us to this extraordinary subject sir yes my pleasure bismillah uh, rahman rahim alhamdulillah wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah so thank you very much first of all i'm thrilled to be on your podcast which i enjoy greatly and i learn uh, a lot from um, and um, I am 
uh, also fond of your really thoughtful questions to your interlocutors, and I'm looking forward to it today. Um, the caliphate is, as I said, is synonymous with the uh, land of Islam. There is, in fact, no other word uh, for it, for this collectivity that was Islam. Um, and in fact, I argue elsewhere that until before the Mongol conquest in the 13th century, the caliphate understood as succession to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, would have been the defining feature of uh, Islam and Islamic law or the Sharia, which is seen after the Mongol period as the defining feature, would have been secondary to it. So it is that central. Wow. In other words, what people would have looked at or pointed to when thinking of Islam as a phenomenon in this world would have been this um, succession to the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and the caliph literally means just that, successor to the Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, whose job was to care for the community. Um, but the caliph also represented, in a sense, two kinds of continuities, continuity back to the Prophet Muhammad and continuity of all Muslims in the world toward to each other, this sort of a community, if you will. So this community and continuity uh, were really central to Islamic self-understanding. And after the Mongol destruction in 1258 uh, of the city of Baghdad, where uh, the caliphate had been housed in the first uh, seven centuries, um, there was a three-year uh, interregnum, and then the a caliph was re-erected in Cairo for, for several centuries later. Um, but that caliphate had less prestige than the Baghdad caliphate. And also there was a recognition that this could happen, that this was a possibility that the caliphate could come to an end. That, um, so my uh, book that you mentioned is an account really uh, not of Ibn Taymiyyah's biography or, or his works, but rather it is a, an account of a conceptual history of this idea for seven centuries and how Ibn Taymiyyah uh, reenacts, revives some of the early understanding of the community. Um, and this article, if you will, mm. is a call to rethink the idea um, of the caliphate in light of modern developments, which mm. we can talk more about. Mm -hmm. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, fantastic. So today's situation is uh, very different. We don't have a caliphate uh, since the 1920s um, when the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate uh, came to 
an end and we have the rise of modern nation states in the Muslim world. So is, are you saying that the, the caliphate is normative for Islam? And if so, is it the same for Sunni and for Shia or are they, are they different perspectives on what constitutes this um, governance in the Islamic world? Ah, excellent question. So yes, for, for one, uh, not only the caliphate's normative as in an obligation for Muslims, it is a consensus issue, a unanimous consensus among scholars. And that includes not only Sunni and Shia, but also Ibadis and every, effectively every community that historically survived after uh, the first century and a half of tumult. So um, absolutely Shia and Sunni and Khawarij uh, or, or, or the, the moderate Khawarij, the Ibadis who, who, who continue to live in North Africa and in Oman, all agree on this one theoretical obligation. And not only is it a theoretical obligation, but one that is often used as a textbook example of what ijma or consensus really? looks like. Wow. So if, you, if you read something like the uh, redoubtable uh, Ashari thinker and uh, uh, teacher of Al-Mam al-Ghazali, his book on uh, the caliphate is the classic statement of the theory of the caliphate, which is a development over uh, another book by Al-Mawardi written a generation before Al-Juwaini. But Al-Juwaini's book is far more developed theoretically. And that book... uh, uses, and by by the way, that book is used until today in, for example, disputes after the Arab Spring. So a theologian would say, Al-Juwaini said this, and somebody said, well, no, actually he said that, that sort of thing. So Al-Juwaini uses the idea of uh, this caliphate. Uh, The book is about the caliphate, but he also establishes the doctrine of ijma, of unanimous consensus, by showing uh, that this was the paradigmatic case on which Muslims agreed. Um, the reason for agreement, uh, the basis for how uh, an obligation is established in Islam, differs based on theological school. The traditionalists believe that a sound hadith or a few sound hadiths yeah. are sufficient to establish the obligation. Just an just a, a had hadith, just a, a solitary or minimally uh, transmitted hadith is enough to establish that point. But it's not, I understand, impacts in the Asherite perspective where there's a desire right. for more uh, multiple mutawata um, attested hadith. So there's a difference in emphasis. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why you find that Al-Juwaini says that, of course, there are hadith that establish that, but we need, because this is a matter of absolute centrality, we need something stronger, and ijma is that absolute uh, bedrock, if you will, for him, qat'i, or definitive proof. Whereas somebody like Ibn Taymiyyah, who argues uh, that, in fact, uh, a had hadith, which doesn't mean a solitary, one no. single chain, but yeah. less than mutawatir, yeah. can, in fact, establish Uh, or definitive proof. And then he also says reason and rationality both play a role um, in establishing Islamic obligations. But, um, and and Mu'tazila, the rationalists before all of this centuries ago or centuries earlier than this debate, also uh, established both by reason and revelation this obligation. Uh, And the Shia, of course, had a different uh, perspective for, for, the, for the Shia, that this obligation is not merely an obligation, but it is a foundation of religion. Mm. Um, so that if you don't believe in an imam, if you do not have an imam, then your faith is questionable, your salvation is questionable. Whereas for the Sunnis, if it is not established, then people who are uh, responsible for such state of affairs and could do something about it and fail to do, they are um, um, uh, culpable, but your faith is not, if you will, uh, incomplete. So that's the difference between Shia and Sunni. For the Sunnis, it is a legal obligation. 
Right. Whereas for the Shia, one could say it's a theological article of faith. Yeah, because the, the status of imams in Shia theology is quite, quite different. Um, yeah. But I mean, I've got to mention, because m- many viewers might well be wondering, um, what about so-called Islamic State, which is in a sense, still rumbling on. I get the impression that, you know, Americans are still flying over there and bombing them occasionally, but obviously they're much, much reduced. But surely this is not, I mean, they proclaim themselves uh, as a caliphate. We, um, the, the individual who I mentioned is proclaimed himself caliph. Um, why is that not an Islamic state in the sense that you, we are speaking about, that you are trying to outline? But why is this seen as problematic for, I mean, virtually every Muslim I've ever met sees ISIS as uh, completely beyond the pale, but but why that they they are they proclaim themselves <clears throat> to be a caliphate, a revival of the long defunct system? Well, yeah. So the question to think about is, if the caliphate is an obligation, why couldn't one just declare a caliphate in the backyard of one's parents or in the garage, right? Um, <laughs> you know, just say that you have a caliphate and you're done. Um, the entire idea of the caliphate is that you are to care for and be acknowledged by the community of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, And that has no territorial boundaries. Right. And uh, in fact, Imam al-Jawini, whom I referred to earlier, discusses this issue by saying that if you are in a state of affairs when there is no caliphate, then what you do? In fact, the entire second section of the book is about that. Um, and one of the things that he talks about is <clears throat> if, let's say, you, there is a caliph, but you are separated from the caliph, either by a body of water or by hostile enemy territory, or you're just in a situation where you're no, no, not territorially connected to the caliphate and cannot be governed in that way, then you choose an amir, a leader, um, Amir literally is a military commander in Arabic, so it's a very humble title. Um, but Amir al-Mu'minin uh, is another title that was used for the caliph historically. But he says, use uh, just the, uh, have an Amir who will up- uphold the law, but you cannot call yourself the Imam or the caliph. I should also mention, by the way, that Imam and caliph uh, sometimes it is thought that the Shia have imams and Muslims have caliphs, but in fact, they were um, for the Sunnis interchangeable titles. So if you look at Sunni theological treatises, they use the word imam, and historical works use the word khalifa or caliph. Mm. So the, the uh, ISIS is not given any credibility in its claim to represent a restored caliphate because they don't meet the criteria. Uh, and also, I'm, I'm aware that most of the people they seem to kill happen to be Muslims as well. They seem to have a, uh, a particularly uh, egregious uh, attitude to Muslims who disagree with them in the sense of just exterminating them, which is not exactly what the caliphate is supposed to be about. Exactly. And in fact, uh, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi forewarned about people who will um, the Khawarij, who later came to be called the Khawarij. The Prophet didn't call them the Khawarij, but that term came to be applied to the Khawarij historically. But it is really general that whoever these young people who um, have uh, who who appear so pious uh, that you are ashamed. Uh, that is talking to the Sahaba, your worship is less than theirs, perhaps, but um, they will kill Muslims. They will read the Quran, but will not go beyond their throats, uh, and they will kill Muslims. And uh, the Prophet then uh, gave very stern warning about them, and this is uh, narrated in the Mutawatir Hadith uh, on the authority of Ali, as well as many other companions. Um, So the... Uh, the difficulty, however, theoretically speaking, for somebody like Daesh is that because the caliphate is supposed to care for the community of the Prophet Muhammad, you have two options. Either you, in fact, do the hard work of reaching out to the community, understand the community, try to bring them together uh, and try to create that consensus by discourse, by cultural and social, political, economic means make it possible the hard way, or uh, you simply radically contract the community by saying that everybody who doesn't agree with me is not a Muslim anyway. So I've got all Muslims right here. 
And they went for this uh, latter option, laughable as it is. Mm. It's extraordinary. Um, My goodness, they're on on the way out, it seems. Um, I just want to ask about um, the Ottoman Caliphate, which which I was in Turkey for the first time in my life just a few uh, few months ago. I'm very impressed by this, the, the symbol, the living symbol of this caliphate, which doesn't really exist anymore. And you, you mentioned in, in your article um, how the, the uh, how uh, Sultan Erdogan, um, as he is affectionately known by his admirers, um, recently declared the Republic of Turkey to be in some sense a continu- in continuity with the Ottoman ca- caliphate. And is, is that a thing or is that just a kind of a political transience that, you know, will disappear with with his own leaving office eventually. Is that is this has this got legs? Is this going to go anywhere? This re- reviving of the Ottoman ideal in that area. You know, I think that generally Muslims, because Muslims are so diverse, the Muslim world is so large. Everybody contributes in small ways, sometimes big ways. And Turkey's revival has certainly been very important psychologically for Muslims worldwide. Uh, just visiting the city of Istanbul reminds you of that uh, yeah, absolutely old glory that that you know um, it, it's just absolutely astounding. If you haven't been to Istanbul, you, you haven't you know you haven't been anywhere. Um, so that's I think uh, uh, true that Turkey and Istanbul still are very important, and they were the most recent manifestation of the caliphate. Uh, that did uphold the Sharia uh, to a large degree. But I think that these rhetorical, uh, you know, politics, rhetoric, of course, all of this is very much part of uh, politics. And Erdogan was not the first or the last uh, uh, ruler to to remind us of that, to try to connect us to that. Remember Salahuddin, or sorry, Saddam Hussein uh, connected himself to the uh, legacy of Salahuddin Ayyubi because they were from Tikrit, the same uh, right. background. Um, so I think that that uh, is, uh, no, I don't say it's, it's nothing, it's not valuable, but this is part of Muslim politics historically. Mm. People connect themselves to the memories um, and, uh, you know, memories and desires that then uh, shape their their followers and shape the following coming generations. Um, so I don't see it more than that, but I think that in itself is interesting and valuable, not because Erdogan said it, but because he thought as a politician that this has purchase. Mm, yes. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I just want to dig a bit deeper, if I may, into this idea of, of the caliphate, even if only in its theoretical form. You mentioned that it's functioned um, as a successor and caring for the Ummah, the Muslim community uh, globally. But what are its specific functions? Now, in your article, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the caliphate is tasked with upholding the law, uh, implementing hudud punishments, um, presumably collecting zakat, defending the ummah, so there's defense aspect uh, to it and, and so on. I mean, but it's not a theocracy, is it? It's not like, because um, in the West, this is a problem. It's, it's very often demonized. It's associated with uh, obviously ISIS. But before then, I think it was, it was uh, seen as, uh, problematic at best. And now we live in modern nation states with liberal democracies and the rule of law and so on. So th- this seems to be a, a different conception of political governance, doesn't it? Where there is a specifically Islamic content to it, a religious content, which you just don't find in liberal democracies, which have a kind of majoritarian, majoritarian secular agenda. So uh, could you just un- unpack a bit more about what the caliphate is supposed to do functionally vis-a-vis Islam itself? Right. Uh, excellent question. So there are, um, there's a lot there. Let me take it point by point and then please feel free to, to jump in and, and, uh, and direct the conversation. Um, first of all, there were historically at least three different forms of the caliphate. Right. Um, the Rashidun caliphate, which was, a, uh, a small, if you will, face-to-face community in which the caliph was first among equals and a continuation, if you, of, if you will, of the prophet's own pastoral care for his community 
Uh, and at this time, uh, the major difference between the caliph and the prophet was that the caliph was not the prophet, did not receive revelation, and therefore could be wrong and needed to be corrected and needed consultation and advice um, from the community. And this was the great declaration of Abu Bakr, uh, the first, very first khutbah or sermon that he gave upon election was that uh, I am not uh, infallible. I'm not the best of you even. And if I'm wrong, correct me. And my job is to strengthen the weak um, and take the right of the uh, weak from the strong, from among you. In other words, my job is what governments do, which is a kind of redistribution uh, and ensuring of law and order. Um, and in, in addition, of course, to the protection of the boundaries and the mission of Islam itself, which is to be exemplar and witnesses unto humankind. Um, now, there then came, if you will, what we might call the imperial caliphate, the caliphate as an empire. And when I use the word empire, I mean simply a kind of uh, political form where number of cities and number of different languages and ethnicities over a lost, vast territory are brought under the control of one, uh, one central uh, elite and one central uh, cosmopolitan city. The idea of the empire, therefore, is uh, well known to the Near East, um, thousand, two thousand years or so before Islam. Uh, in fact, three thousand, and um, so Islam, in that sense, with the Umayyads and the Abbasids, takes that form, but with important differences, um, which we can talk about later. But then, uh, about two centuries to three centuries later, uh, two to three centuries later, the beginning of the fourth century, the Abbasid Caliph, who until now had both the uh, symbolic power uh, and the actual power to govern, is, um, you know, the Abbasid Caliphate is fragmented. Um, some Persian warlords called the Buyids take over Baghdad and uh, from then onward, the caliph becomes, caliph in Baghdad, that is, becomes a symbolic um, office. Mm. Now, this is, there is a lot more hidden there when I say symbolic. It is kind of, you could say, or the first example I give my students is the British Queen, for instance, symbolically represents the great past and sort of the continuity and um, but it is more than that. In, at this time in Baghdad, a caliph is a lot more. Uh, in other words, imagine a world full of faith in which the authority of the Prophet Muhammad and the continuity from him holds a lot more status um, than secular power of these military warlords who are actually governing. Whereas in modern Britain, that would not be the case. Um, so that remains the case for a few centuries. And then when the Ottomans take power um, and, and, and conquer the Middle East in 1516, 1517, they, Sultan Salim uh, takes uh, this title, the Caliph, from the Caliph who would have been in Cairo. And then, if you will, the Ottomans become the Sunni Caliphs again, and power and symbolic authority is reunited once again until uh, the 19th century. And then late 19th century, of course, when this power is, uh, is progressively lost and the early 20th century, 1924 is the formal date when the caliphate is abolished, but it had stopped functioning as with any kind of actual power uh, even before that. Now, there are two doctrines of this. Now, theoretically speaking, I gave you a historical example of these three models, mm. the Rashidun, the imperial caliph, the uh, symbolic caliphate. These okay. are three models. If I could just just pause, just pause you there. I, I was struck, and, and you, you remark on this in your essay, uh, Who Wants the Caliph? Is that that, that first in, instance of the caliphate for its egalitarian ethos, uh, and that you mentioned the caliph was the first among equals. So he wasn't an absolute ruler. He wasn't a dictator, a monarch, um, yeah. whom one 
bowed down to. You know, he, he was the first among equals. And, and this egalitarian ethos is there in the Quran and the Sunnah, arguably with the Prophet himself. And, and that seems to have been lost in later instantiations of the caliphate that as, as you describe them. And I thought that was very interesting that it had that feature, but which was subsequently lost. Absolutely. Mm. Um, although I should say that we should differentiate between you know, saying that the later caliphate, the imperial caliphate or the Ottoman caliphate was not uh, egalitarian. That is true. But it is not to say that these caliphs had absolute power. They were not absolutists. They were not absolute, absolute despots. Right. Uh, this is a, a stereotype since actually Karl Marx, who used to talk, spoke about Asiatic despots and Orientalism. Orientalists have endlessly repeated this. But in fact, uh, one of the things that historians, actual historians, not those Orientalists who sort of generalize, mm. uh, argue that one of the problems in Islamic uh, history throughout <laughs> was that Caliph did not have a th enough authority, <laughs> that the ulama uh, significantly circumscribed the authority of the Caliph. Right. And to give you a couple examples from history, Abu Yusuf, who was a student of Abu Hanifa, Abu Hanifa had been a Persian jurist and, of course, now is the imam of the greatest number uh, of, of, of Muslims of the, four, of the four schools. Abu Hanifa's direct student and, and dis, both a disciple and a friend, um, Abu Yusuf, was the chief justice of uh, or the chief judge of uh, the Abbasid, greatest Abbasid caliph, most powerful, uh, mm. Harun al-Rashid. Mm. And he writes a treatise to Harun al-Rashid in which he straight up says, you as a caliph must follow the example of the Salaf, including the Salaf such as Abu Hanifa. So what he was saying to Harun al-Rashid, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad himself, so to speak, who is the caliph and the representative of uh, all Muslims, um, that he does not, he's not the Pope. He doesn't have the absolute authority even to interpret religion. Um, he must, in fact, follow the opinions, the best opinions that are available of the interpretation of the Quran and the Sunnah. And one of those interpretations is that of Abu Hanifa, a Persian who con converted to Islam. And his only claim to fame was that he understood the Quran and the Sunnah mm. um, and did brilliant jurisprudence. This treatise, by the way, Kitab al-Kharaj by Abu Yusuf, gives you a sense to what extent the powers of the caliph were, in theory and principle, constitutionally speaking, limited. And then in the Ottoman Empire, we have case, the case of many sultans who were deposed by the fatwa of the, um, the qadi, of the chief judge. Um, so it is true that this is this wasn't the for the the uh, first among equals consultative uh, ascetic caliphate of the first thirty years that we look up to as an ideal. But even afterward, um, the caliphs could not act as theocrats. Right. Certainly not the Sunni caliphs. The, the, right. Well, this is a really important point, I, uh, and you're emphasizing it, and thank you for that, because the perception by many in the West is precisely that, that, they, that the caliph is like a, a theocratic monarch uh, who, you know, like an ayatollah, like a, a literary sign of God who dispenses, um, you know, his dogmatic rule uh, at will. And that's simply not the case. I mean, that, that is a complete travesty, complete, complete fiction. And it's such an, uh, such an important point. So thank you uh, for, for stressing that. So did you want to continue? Yeah. So I wanted to then say that given that there is this diversity and this institutional variety in Islamic history and how the caliphate is, uh, is actualized, sometimes mm -hmm. a slightly more symbolic role and other times an actual uh, role of, of dispensing justice and law and order and, and defense and so on. The idea that the, the, there is flexibility within the theory itself. And for, to, for example, but, you know, you have in, among the great classical scholars, Ibn Timiyah and Al-Jawaini on one side who say that the caliph in fact needs to have a quantum of power so right. that he can dis dispense with some of the, the duties 
that are assigned. Whereas somebody like Al-Ghazali says, well, if you cannot have that, then merely a symbolic caliphate is still necessary for the community. Um, but these uh, scholars also recognized that the institutional responsibilities of the caliph were also varied historically, in fact, from time to time, place to place. And Ibn Taymiyyah remarks on that. He was a remarkable historian. He knew that, for instance, the, uh, the duties of the, the muftis and the qadis um, and the caliphs and the governors, in fact, varied throughout history. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you have a violent crime, is it going to go to the Qadi or is it going to go to the Mazalim court? Or is it going to go to the Caliph? It varied between the North Africa and, and the, the, the lands in Syria and Cairo. It varied in earlier Umayyad and Abbasid period. Mm-hmm. All this means is that there is a lot of room for, mm-hmm. consti- for institutional creativity uh, for us available today. The Caliphate shouldn't be understood as a as a form of government that uh, is an institutional form. Rather, it should be seen as um, continuity, the two continuities that I said, the continuity to the Prophet and of Muslims globally. Now, some of those, for example, uh, could be part of the caliphate uh, as institutionally, or, and, and others could be more symbolically so. Um, as was the case with the Ottomans in 19th century, who, for instance, ruled over the Middle East, but the Muslims in India, for example, looked up to them as caliphs and, um, and, and, and the realm in between the Safavids, that is Iran, uh, was uh, going through a number of sort of civil wars and whatnot and, and, and was not settled. Um, and... Therefore, it is for modern Muslims to learn from the institutional creativity, whether it's of liberal democracies or social democracies or uh, perhaps other forms of government, and to come up with something that is protective of the rights of minorities and that deals with the, um, with the variation of, of creed and language and ethnicity uh, and of course, the vastness of territory. Mm. Um, and I give the example of European Union, for example, but one could also think of uh, early United States, the 13 colonies, as they are brought together in a compromised constitution. One could think of um, uh, you know, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, OIC, as, uh, as a beginning of something, uh, some greater unification. All of these things are um, I think valid ways to start thinking about what a modern caliphate would look like. Mm. Interesting, interesting. I mean, one of the things that, that struck me, you reading your article, reading about the caliphate, is c- comparing the, say, the Ottoman model, which lasted for many centuries, with modern liberal secular states, say, like random example, like France, uh, where the Muslim population there, which is very substantial. Um, is quite hemmed in in terms of what it can, can do and can't do. Um, and there's pretty much a taboo on public expression of faith. But in the Ottoman Empire, it seems, with the what's called the millet system, there was much more diversity and pluralism and religious freedom in these pre-modern, that pre-modern empire, if I can call it pre-modern, than there is probably in any or most modern secular democracies in the West. What I mean is that, you know, you could have a community, say a Christian community within these, the Muslim empire that could um, live by its own communal values and religious values. It could marry and, and divorce and inherit and, and so on and have limited autonomy even to live according to their uh, own religion. Um, and so could Jews, of course, and, and famously, according to there's an American historian, a Jewish historian who said Islam saved Jewry literally from extinction uh, because of the, the issues at that time. Um, so but compare that to, say, France, I'm not picking on France particularly, but you, you couldn't have any kind of religious freedom as a community in France, Muslim community or Jewish community at all. The, the, the really, the allegiance is to the state. The state sets the laws, the social norms, education, but everything is regimented uh, in a quite a absolutist hierarchical way to Paris. 
uh, and through the department. But you're almost getting this now in Britain as well. Not so severe, but it's beginning beginning to see signs of that in the UK. Actually, that's been noted. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that contrary to perhaps many Western perceptions of the Islamic State in the Ottoman Empire and in others, it was very pluralist, diverse uh, and and uh, accommodating of different religions and their freedom of expression in a way that seems absent, actually, in a communal expression, actually prohibited um, in many Western secular democracies. And I just find that richly ironic, given the rhetoric and the uh, the language that's used in the West about its own, you know, its own self. I mean, it, am I in the right path there, or am I? Is that too crude an oversimplification? No, you're absolutely right. Um, of course, first one must note that historically under the caliphate, uh, non-Muslim communities lived as a matter of rule. There was never a point where the caliphate was only a government of Muslims uh, or over Muslims, right? A Muslim government. Uh, uh, Mus- other communities always lived under Islam and thrived. Right. If they had not thrived, they wouldn't be around still 14 centuries oh. later, which is why my uh, good friend, I'm proud to call him a friend, Professor Wael Halak, um, says in openly in, in interviews, for instance, that he would rather live in a caliphate, the Umayyad Caliphate or the Abbasid Caliphate, than in contemporary uh, New York as a Palestinian Christian. I was going to say, he's not a Muslim. Uh, you, you just, you just yes. answered that point. And he's written some amazing books, actually. Uh, he's extraordinary intellectual. Yeah. Right. And so um, that is because that kind of humane freedom that is available, because Islam sees human beings as necessarily part of communities. Mm. So that, you know, Islam, as if it's saying to Jews or Christians or even Zoroastrians and Hindus that you can, um, your belief has some errors or it may have been, may have been completely off base, um, Zoroastrianism or Hinduism. Nevertheless, you as a human being have a right to live a, an honorable life within your community of people who are like you and uh, be held up to the standards of that community that you espouse, you aspire to, you espouse. So in other words, not you as an individual, right? It's in fact very inhumane to reduce humanity to individuals and then that you stand before the state uh, alone and naked. And I am going to ensure, you know, I have all your loyalties um, and, and based on whatever the elite decides the law and the norms and the culture uh, are going to be uh, imposed on you. And yes, you have the right to cast a vote uh, at the end of four years or whatnot, but, uh, but you live uh, alone in, in my eyes, right? In the opticon, that is not the case in Islam from the beginning. This isn't the invention of the Milat system of the Ottomans. In fact, Milat system was merely a bureaucratization of what had existed uh, throughout the Islamic realms everywhere. Um, And so this idea that Islam gives freedom to communities Mm. more than liberal democracy does uh, to communities, uh, whereas liberal democracy uh, thinks of itself as governing individuals Mm. and freedom it gives is to individuals. Um, And that's why comparing liberal democracy to Islamic order is sometimes apples and oranges. Yes. And uh, you know, you would often, people would point to all the things individuals could do, but forget that, well, as a community, you couldn't, for instance, in modern America, you cannot be polygamous uh, or have or practice polygamy, even yeah. if it's part of your religion, because it is extremely offensive um, to somebody else. But since uh, you, you, you give that example uh, without going into the internal politics of the US, but you, know, you mentioned about polygamy not, uh, being illegal, um, and there's a, there's a history to do that with the Mormons and a whole sort of baggage. Right. But gay marriage is okay, and that's been legalized, um, and that's a very offensive to, to many people. So you get this right. kind of curious world here where polygamy, which is obviously a practiced in the Bible, you know, the, the, the patriarchs were polygamous and so on, ne- never condemned. 
um, is outlawed, but gay marriage becomes the constitutional right. And you get this, go, why is polygamy outlawed if gay marriage is accepted? And, and I, I don't want to go to the answer to that, but you get this curious kind of outcome of disparate kind of values which don't kind of cohere really very well. Right, absolutely. And that goes to the heart of the problem, which is that who sets the values hmm. um, and the moral commitments, the comprehensive doctrine that Rawls will, will, will talks about, uh, be, that liberal democracy's fundamental claim that, uh, you know, that it is, it is secular and neutral vis-a-vis uh, -vis your personal commitments is not true. In fact, it is constantly engaged in shaping and reshaping, redefining your religiosity and your moral values. And religions have to adjust. Religions are uh, the passive recipients of um, the public sphere, which is won by uh, the greatest, most organized interest, whether it's capitalist corporations or uh, other uh, military industrial complex, the elite who um, rule in the name of interest, not moral value. Yes. And that is why I think that while Halak, um, Professor Wael Halak is absolutely correct when he uh, refers to the Sharia as fundamentally moral, whereas the modern secular paradigm as fundamentally amoral. It is a non-moral way of looking at the world where the idea of right and wrong uh, are relegated to your personal space, but that personal space is constantly invaded by the public interests and public discourses. Um, so it really morality disappears. Mm, gosh, yeah, that's a very trenchant critique there. I, I, I just want to just address a, an issue. Uh, this is controversial. You don't have to answer. I'm not going to mention names, but it struck, struck, strikes me when I listen to prominent American uh, Muslim intellectuals, and I don't obviously mean yourself for obvious reasons, is that the, the C word, the caliphate word or the K word, um, is not really spoken about publicly. It, it seems to be, I mean, yeah, we can talk about spiritual renewal or we can talk about the rights of Palestinians and oh, oh, you know, very worthy and all that. But the K word, the Khalifa or the C word, seems to be missing. Uh, perhaps I just missed it from the public discourse with, with say, the noble exception of your good self. Um, why is that? G given the normative, you, you've defined it as absolutely normative and central concept or political reality in Islam, and yet it seems to be absent from much discourse. I mean, I, I can mention leading very well-known Islamic, I'm not going to mention their names, and many of I respect them, but it's not a personal ad hominem point. It's just that it's not on their lips very often, if at all. Uh, am I getting, is that true, or am I just missing the times they have spoken of it? No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, in part, of course, Muslims in America are, mus are, are a minority community, Muslims in diaspora, and, um, and they are relatively new community. Um, and so Muslims, so far as they're concerned with survival, they don't think about Islam except in so far as it is imposed on them. Right. Uh, even other fundamental commitments of Islam, such as Sharia, for example, was not a word you would hear a lot in the 90s as the American Muslim community was getting settled um, and, if you will, assimilated quickly. And then uh, the right wing comes and, you know, sort of, you know, bang on your head. Do yeah. you believe in the Sharia? And somehow, timidly, Muslim leadership has to say, oh, yeah, 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 you know, we, yes, there is Sharia, but Sharia is good. Sharia means just, you know, being smi smiling and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so it is, in a sense, Muslim discourse in uh, the West in general, but particularly in the United States. Uh, there are certain many virtues, I think, of freedom here, but at the same time, it is driven very heavily by uh, the agenda. Uh, that is outside of us, the agenda of assimilation. Um, and so that is a, there is a limit. However, as far as I'm concerned of the leading Muslim scholars of Islamic law, uh, they are either publicly or at least privately completely on board with me. I have not heard from any prominent Islamic legal scholar um, 
saying that, ah, this is, this is a travesty. Why would you write this article? In fact, many of them are teaching that in their own graduate seminars and discussing it publicly or privately with me because the content is, is very much the, the normative content in Islamic tradition. You will find that if you read any book on Islamic history or Islamic legal history, uh, even ones written by, uh, uh, you know, textbook Orientalist, Bernard Lewis or uh, Michael Cook or, you know, or, yeah. you know they, these people, when they talk about what is normative in Islam, as far as they see in the texts, um, this isn't a secret. Uh, but Muslim apologists do try to, uh, uh, you know, divert the discourse toward um, areas and things that they, they see as truthful as in, in, their, in this sort of private life as a minority in diaspora. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that what the American Muslims have yet to embrace, and I think European Muslims in particular, British Muslims have done a lot more, is to embrace the global nature of Islam and their recognition that they are in, in, in a way connected to the Muslim community in the Muslim-majority countries. Americans espouse a doctrine, a version of uh, American exceptionalism. Yes, indeed. Right. And I think that's going away. That's withering away. We are, we are being humbled uh, by a number of developments as the world is becoming more uh, multipolar. Um, mm. You realize that you're part of the world. Um, uh, you know, that's true of ordinary Americans as well. But, Amer- uh, but Muslim Americans, similarly, younger people, I think, are recognizing that this idea that, uh, uh, that was at, at first taught, especially after the war on terror in 2000 one terrorist attacks and the Muslim community's reaction to that was uh, completely, um, you know, just cower. You know, this is, you couldn't talk about anything. You're afraid you were, you were guilty uh, before uh, without any trial. Yeah. Uh, you, you believed you were guilty. I'm not even just talking about the travesty of law and, 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 uh, um, uh, under President Bush and whatnot. I'm talking about how Muslims felt in the deepest core about themselves. And I think that part of the reason why I wrote the article so openly and boldly was to challenge that uh, this self-indictment yes. of the American Muslim mind. Yeah. That's the article, by the way. As I've said before, um, I, I will link to it in the description uh, below. Uh, it's 52 pages long. But um, academic papers can be boring sometimes. This one is not. This is a real riveting read. I found it to be so. It mixes, mixes theory, observation, historical analysis, and it talks about the contemporary situation and, and you know what can be done moving forward. And I was just reminded, you mentioned British Muslim uh, writers. This one, uh, Reza Pankhurst, he's a British Muslim scholar. Uh, the Inevitable Caliphate, a history of the struggle for global Islamic union, 1924 to the present. Of course, that was the year the caliphate ended. And um, this has, interesting, the reviews on the back from some very senior uh, professors, uh, mainstream professors uh, at the LSE and Durham University and so on, praising it to the hilt as, as a, just a fantastic academic analysis of the caliphate um, since 1924. So I, uh, I recommend that as well. And I've already recommended uh, your work, um, looking at Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, thought, as well as who wants um, the caliphate article as well. Um, I mean, I, I could carry on for hours talking about this, but I'm, I realize it, um, that's not appropriate. But um, just in summary, um, how can I put this? I mean, I, I've been doing some, um, Twitter spaces the last four, five, six days on Twitter. It's a new thing, a new bit of technology. You open up a room and we've been talking about the, the situation of the Ummah and we've been latterly talking also about the caliphate, um, which is why uh, our meeting today is so timely in a way. And there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of keen interest because of the, the suffering and the disunity and the plight of Muslims, whether it be the Uyghur Muslims or the Muslims in Chechnya or Kashmir or in occupied Palestine and so on and so on and so on in France, um, 
with the election coming up there, the rhetoric there, the Islamophobic rhetoric uh, has to be seen to be believed. Um, so is it is it right to hope for the caliphate? What I'm trying to get is very human, emotional question. It's not an intellectual, it's an emotional question. Should, should Muslims obviously put their faith in God? I'm not saying that that, that is, and God's pro, um, provision for the Ummah. But is this something we should actively look to, to strive for, to imagine, to talk about in our lives? Does it have that reality, do you think? Should it have that reality? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the point of my um, article. And it's not just an article, but also a, a research institute that I'm part of founding um, that uh, called Omatics Institute. In fact, you can go online and look at Omatics Colloquium, one word, omaticcolloquium.org, where a number of scholars and interlocutors have come together to start talking about this and writing about this. And uh, more is coming uh, in future. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm, I'm riveted to hear that you you have a, uh, a group of people that you're talking to about this as well. My recommendation to people is precisely this, um, that there needs to be a discursive transformation mm. uh, in Muslim spaces mm. that is uh, not a waste of time, as people think, so long as it's done politely and so long as um, it is done in a way that uh, does not dismiss of other central aspects of our Islam, Islamic religion, our Islamic tradition, whether spirituality, connection to Allah, or, uh, or, or humane uh, treatment of all problems around us. Um, the point of my article, if, my state, if I may state it uh, at this point, is threefold, which is that the caliphate is A, required religiously, B, feasible, and C, in fact, necessary uh, to solve the many uh, immediate problems. And this is the right historic moment uh, at the heels of three decades of globalization, possible move toward deglobalization, uh, at a moment when the civilizational state is rising in China and in India, uh, Europe is closing in on itself. The, uh, uh, it is no longer possible for millions of Muslims to take refuge elsewhere. It's become extremely clear. Um, the uh, rising sea levels for instance, the rising inequality economically. Those are the two greatest challenges that are going to produce wars that, that are going to look like they're political wars or, or maybe uh, ideological wars, but the very basic reality of inequality and um, the, the rising sea levels, which is you know nearly 800 million uh, people in the world live in, a, in, a, in the range of uh, you know, near... Uh, uh, coastal areas or in coastal areas where within the next 50 years or, or less um, that are going to become uninhabitable, uh, which means that there are many reasons why there is going to be so much uh, moving around, so many refugees, so many wars, that if something is not done about this region, then the world is going to turn positively dystopian for Muslims. And if that happens for, you know, nearly 2 billion people, uh, it's certainly going to happen for others as well. Um, so thinking about the Muslim world uh, is absolutely not an option. It's not a luxury. Um, and as far as dreaming is concerned, envisioning a better future, uh, you know, our hope is based in faith, uh, not only calculation, but there must also be calculation and rational discourse, which we must engage in. I see that as, you see the idea, you know, every couple of decades, the reality that appears seems to be in, seems to have been incredible just uh, two decades, one decade ago mm -hmm. or earlier. So, for instance, 
the rise of China. You know, China was a third world country, never thought, you know, in the 70s uh, or even 80s or even 90s, you know, people didn't really think of China as an alternative to the West, let alone a superpower that will challenge America. India, similarly, now, of course, in, in grasp of uh, an ethno-nationalist uh, Hindu extremism, um, you know, was uh, the, great, the biggest democracy, as it was called, um, and, 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 and rose up quite quickly mm. uh, until, until falling, if you will, to this travesty. Uh, so the idea, democracy itself was an idea that was for 2,500 years mocked by philosophers from Plato and Aristotle to <clears throat> Al-Farabi to, uh, in fact, even early American thinkers, nobody thought that democracy yeah. was worth attention. I was going to say, the, fact, the American founding fathers weren't exactly fans of popular democracy, were they? they right. They, if anything, they were horrified by it. And yet America kind of evolved into a democracy almost uh, in spite of the founding fathers who are seen now as founders of America. Well, they weren't. We wouldn't have supported the contemporary situation in that sense, arguably. Right. So I think that that's the, that if, if uh, an idea could come back to life after 2,500 years, hmm. why not the caliphate after some hundred years of absence? So I don't think that, um, there is, that, that anything is impossible or even unlikely. I think that it's very likely that new developments. In fact, they're happening all the time, right? Just imagine 20 years ago, Saudi Arabia was seen as the bastion of Islam that was exporting its Islamic ideology worldwide. But nevertheless, this is where you got the money. This is where you got the clerics. This is where you got the, you know, you got your religious boost. Uh, and Turkey was seen as effectively part of Europe, a Kafir country where yes. you, you would not think that it's that this would be the center of Islamic discourse in in in, in foreseeable future. Just right. twenty years later, um, that is flipped completely, where Saudi rulers are yeah. um, extricating Islam from uh, their DNA, and uh, and Turkey is moving in a different direction. All of this is unexpected. I think that partly we are all limited. By our, uh, by what, what, by, by the the conditions in which we find ourselves, and even though they're constantly changing, we want to cling to them. Uh, but of course, I think that uh, uh, I, I I find that, as environmentalists say, to think that you can continue this kind of capitalism and consumerism, that's the insanity, not to think of an alternative order. Similarly, uh, to think that you can continue this despotic, mutually internally divided uh, uh, government governing of Muslims through proxies, uh, you know, if to think that that can continue forever. That's the insanity. And that to me is the most fantastic idea. Uh, not that Muslims would begin to think so differently. Mm. Wow, that's extraordinary. I, I like your um, analogy of democracy, by the way, but born in ancient Greece, what, two and a half thousand years ago, quickly died a death. No one, there was no democracy at all. And then even when America was founded, it wasn't democratic, no intention of being democratic. And it's come back to life again with a vengeance now in a, in a different form. It's not quite what it was in Athens, of course. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the caliphate has, has uh, been absent since 1924, which is not that long ago. It's almost, almost within living memory of some people, perhaps. So, you know, it's not so far-fetched um, to think of... Um, uh, reimagining the caliphate in the 21st century. Uh, if, if the Democrats can do it with secular liberal democracy, why can't Muslims with their much more recent um, uh, caliphate? So I think that's a, a lovely way of putting it. it. It gives a sense of historical proportion and hope even. Um, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Avamir Anjum, for your um, 
your courageous work um, speaking out on this or writing about this publicly. I know you've come, you won't go into it, but you've come into a little bit of flack from certain people because of it. Uh, they are regrettable. Um, but I, I do uh, thank you for your, um, your scholarship and your, um, your moral courage in talking about this when it's not perhaps fashionable in America to do so. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, we will all continue to read your work. As I say, I will link to uh, Who Wants the Caliphate in the description below. I've already mentioned one of your books um, and you've written other books as well. So um, thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. This was lovely. All right. Until next time. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.